0: Hey, it's Nate Parrish from Wedway Radio, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic.
1: Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. Now, here's your host, Randy Crane.
0: Welcome to Episode 61 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. Today we continue our interview with Adam Berger, former Walt Disney World cast member, current show writer, and author of the book Every Guest is a Hero, Disney Theme Parks and the Magic of Mythic Storytelling. In Part 1, we talked about Adam's time working at Walt Disney World, how and why he started doing so, and how that set him up for what he's doing now as a show writer, though the path was by no means direct. We spent the remainder of Part 1 talking about his work as a show writer, what that means and some of the projects he's worked on, specifically the ones for Disney. Now before we continue with the interview, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Audible.com, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at storiesofthemagic.com audible. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including my own book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom. Speaking of my book, in celebration of Disneyland's 59th anniversary, and the two-year anniversary of Stories of the Magic, you will soon, and for a limited time, be able to get both Faith in the Magic Kingdom and my first book, Once Upon Your Time, free. I mentioned last week how that's going to happen, but I'll remind you at the end of this show, because it's coming up next week. In this episode, Adam talks about working for and Family Entertainment on a bunch of their projects and properties like Silver Dollar City, Ride the Ducks, Dollywood, and more. Why he so enjoys working on Ride the Ducks. A couple of projects for SeaWorld Orlando that he had a hand in that opened recently. Antarctica and Turtle Trek. Why this is a great time to break into the world of showwriting, and the most important skills you need to do so. They're not what you may expect. What he loves most about what he does. Why he wrote Every Guest is a Hero and what the book is about. How Adam became interested in Joseph Campbell and the Hero's journey. Why the hero's journey is so prevalent in the parks. Why it can be difficult to think through these ideas in a very linear fashion, the way that I tend to like to think through things. The basic character archetypes in the hero's journey, also known as the monomyth. The purpose of the hero. The four main movements or stages of the journey. Properly defining myth, it doesn't automatically mean fictional, which is what the way a lot of people use it today the difference between classical fairy tales and so-called modern fairy tales like Once Upon a Time and Maleficent. The current ones aren't really fairy tales, and you'll find out why. Whether Imagineers consciously use the hero's journey when they're creating attractions, and the hero's journeys of the first generation of Walt Disney Imagineers that they themselves were on. Now a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and continue this story.
2: Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, anomalies interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your Anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at Anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by jewelbeat.com. And now
1: this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. We had
0: mentioned SeaWorld, uh, Silver Dollar City, which my dad actually used to work at Silver Dollar City, oh, and a couple podcasting friends grew up going there, and a lot of, I think still go there quite a bit. Uh, Nate and Matt Parrish from Wedway Radio, uh, okay. and then Dollywood, which I just think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is anything you worked on for any of those make it off design and into production?
3: Yeah, I mentioned that you know a lot of the work I do for Disney is uh, subcontracting through it at Shakespeare, but a lot of the other... Companies I work for—they're also contractors. They're not theme park operators. It's, uh, you know, ITIC Productions and Falcons Treehouse and you know, a bunch of the other ones. You know, they're design companies, and so they just don't have a show writer on staff most of the time. So they—they'll uh, they'll call me, and, and I'll be part of their ad hoc uh, creative team. But I do have this one client. That has its own in-house uh, attraction design studio, sort of like their equivalent of WDI, and that's Hersh and Family Entertainment Corporation, and they are the owners of Dollywood, or part owners of Dollywood with Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. They are the owners of, of uh, Silver Dollar City, of Ride of the Ducks International, of the Branson Bell uh, riverboat in uh, on Table Rock Lake in Branson, Missouri, and owners of classic cable car tours in, in San Francisco and a bunch of other attractions. And I've worked on all of them. So usually what happens is I, I work with their creative director, uh, Anthony Esparza, and they come to me with asking me to write up dozens and dozens and dozens of concepts every year. Almost none of them get off the drawing board but, or even get onto the drawing board. They're just concepts. But they, just, they have these pitch sessions to, the, to their executives. But a few of them do. And I've had a hand in the story development of all of, of almost all of them. So these include attractions at Dollywood such as Mystery Mine and Wild Eagle, and one that just opened this year, the season Fire Chaser Express. I, I was part of the story development for that, uh, River Blast and Outlaw Run at Silver Dollar City. Um, for Ride the Ducks International, I wrote the Duck Captain scripts for their amphibious tours of Philadelphia, Bramson, and San Francisco. For Ride the Ducks, I, I've always enjoyed working on those tours because of the way that I get to blend the informational content with jokes and music and that kind of thing. And Plus, since my wife, Julia, is a professional educator, my company also gets to create the field trip activity guides that accompany the tours. So that's always very satisfying.
0: Hmm. You mentioned uh, the Branson Bell. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, work on – I think they just recently changed the show. I have
3: nothing to do with that show. I toured the Branson Bell, but only because I was part of the tour I was writing for Ride the Ducks Branson. Oh, okay. Interesting. Every time they send me to Branson, a huge storm always comes during my visit and I get trapped (laughs) there for like two or three extra days. It's an excuse to see a show or two, right? Yeah, so just if you ever want to avoid a storm, just find out when I'm traveling to Branson.
0: And (laughs) just don't go then. (laughs) Right. Um, What about for SeaWorld?
3: SeaWorld, again, working through It Ain't Shakespeare, I've helped with story development on many proposed new attractions, most of which, again, never see the light of day, but I also helped on a few that have opened in recent years, and those include Antarctica and Turtle Trek, both of them at SeaWorld Orlando. Mm -hmm. Uh, On both of those projects, the work I did involved the very early preliminary stages of the project. So um, I got to help define the key beats of the experiences, although a lot of what I'm doing is so preliminary that you wouldn't actually see any of it in the actual attraction. But uh, we are talking about penguins and sea turtles. And those story beats did indeed allow the structure of the, uh, involve the structure of the hero's journey. I did introduce that in there, although it was pretty much uh, already kind of taking that direction. In the case of Turtle Trek, I also worked on some of the character development in the early days of the project. And At one point, I even wrote character biographies for each of the main characters, the sea turtles and the dolphin, and the sea bird, and uh, several other animals. I guess it sounds strange, but if you've seen the show, since uh, all the animals are depicted pretty naturalistically but the SeaWorld folks wanted some degree of personality to come across to the audience so i end up writing character bios for them each of the turtles has its own biography so it was kind of interesting and they even have names again you never hear their names anywhere in the story in the presentation but uh their names are there and the names fit their personalities hmm so does
0: most of the work you do tend to be for Orlando-based attractions, or do you do any like for SeaWorld? Do you ever do any for SeaWorld San Diego?
3: Yeah, yeah sure. San Diego, uh, anywhere where i have even done stuff for uh, a project that was abandoned uh, for, in SeaWorld Dubai.
0: Oh, yeah. I heard about
3: that. Yeah. They may be going back to the Middle East in a, in a different form, but uh, I, I was a part of the team uh, helping to come up with uh, some creative entertainment concepts for SeaWorld Dubai a number of years ago before that all went south. Hmm. Yeah, and then of course, you know, my other clients have attractions all over the world. I'm working on something in China right now. Several things in China actually for different clients. There's a lot of stuff happening in China. Yes, there is. Yes, and you know, between that and stuff happening in the U.S. and stuff that's happening out in uh, the Arabian Gulf, there's going to be a shortage of design companies out there and design and and show writers and so forth. If there was ever a time for people to break into the industry, this is it because you know, there's a demand there. If you have the skills and the, and, and the ability to do something that uh, is of value to the attraction development people, this is the time to get in the game.
0: If someone wanted to get into that and they wanted to, to develop their skills that direction, what skills would you say are the most important ones to focus on?
3: That, that, that's a short question with a really, really, really long answer. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I think that I would concentrate more than anything else on professionalism. That's something that's sorely lacking but is so important. And I talked about what Itech noticed when I auditioned for them, essentially, by writing my first project for them. Listen. That's the first thing. You have to be able to listen to what the client wants and to really understand them and to be able to you know, pay attention and ask the questions because they're not always going to be very articulate. Sometimes they don't really know what they want, so you have to draw it out of them. So that's the first thing, to listen and ask questions, and then to make sure that all those things that the client really wants gets into whatever it is you're designing or writing. And then you have to be really professional about it. The most important thing, obviously, is meeting your deadlines. You might not believe this, but not everybody meets their deadlines. A number of people just roll right over them, and I've never missed a deadline in in my career, never once. Sometimes I've had my clients extend the deadlines when they've added more material for me to write, but I've never missed a deadline. And that is just – I cannot begin to emphasize how important that is. And to do things not only on schedule but also to do it on budget. You, know, you don't charge the client more than the not-to-exceed amount. Mm-hmm. As often as I can, I try to charge less. I'll come in under budget if I can. And uh, believe me, they notice. They will pay paying attention to what my invoice says, and they know when I'm coming in under budget, and they really appreciate it. So that, that's part of my loyalty-building program. And then, again, a part of being professional is to make sure it, it looks professional, that everything is formatted very neatly and correctly and everything is spelled correctly, that it has good proper syntax, proper grammar, that you're using the correct words for, for what you're trying to express, uh, that you're, you're using the proper nomenclature that you're not misspelling the client's name or the name of the project, that you're consistent about it. Punctuation, if I didn't mention that already, that's very important. You really have to know what you're doing. You have to know the language that you're working in. You've got to be a consummate professional. Uh, the, the client expects and frankly deserves nothing less for their money. Uh, and, you, and then you've got to be courteous and you've got to be just you, – you've got to have a very positive attitude. You've got to go in and you don't say, oh, uh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You, you Find a way to make it work. I guess what's also very important is keep your ego in check. There's a the number of people out there who don't understand that they're part of a team and they're not the center of this entire project. And You can't get, let yourself get so attached to something that you just become very defensive and you become resistant to criticism or changes. You've got to do what's, whatever's best for the project itself and not for your own ego. So uh, the, the more you can suppress your ego probably the more successful you'll be. So I think all those things, if you can do that and be that consummate professional, I don't claim to be that consummate professional, but it's something I'm I'm conscious of and I'm always striving for.
0: Sure, it's the ideal.
3: Yeah, you want to do that. And you just, you want to be the guy or gal that the client wants to call first, the first one they think of on their list. They want to work with you because you're such an enjoyable person to work with. You're such a pleasure. I had one client who referred to me once as a Tylenol. A Tylenol PM, actually.
2: Hmm.
3: What? I'm a Tylenol PM? It says, yes, because you take my headaches away and I can sleep easy at night, knowing that my assignment is in good hands.
0: That's a very creative compliment.
3: Yeah, that's what I said. said, said, The way I said it was, yeah, I'm I'm flattered, I think. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That, I think, sums it up very nicely. You want to be... The Tylenol PM to your client, when after they talk with you and hand over their headache to you, you're going to assume their headache for them without complaint, and they're going to be able to sleep at night knowing that the project is in good hands.
0: Right. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And then I want to ask one more question, and then I want to – we'll dig into the book for as much as we possibly can in the, the time that we'll have available. Okay. And you can answer this – Actually, if you want to do a two part answer, even for this one, this would be that'd be good. Uh, So from your time actually working at Walt Disney World Mm -hmm. and then with what you're doing now and your history of that in each of those scenarios, what did you or do you love most about
3: doing that thing? Oh, well, I guess more than anything else, I just love working with creative people. Just to to feel that creative energy flowing, there's just nothing else like it. And this is not exclusive to Disney by any means. It's part of the whole business. But it's the reason why I got into the business, just to have that creative high. I mean, I've never done drugs, but I imagine this is what a dope addict must feel like when they shoot up. It's, it's, It's just in its best moments. They're not all best moments. But when you do have those moments, it really is a high. You just feel like a million bucks. Uh, and that's the reason why I got into this business, so I could work with creative people and work on creative things, and just feel more creative myself in the process.
0: Now let's talk about the book, which, I, like I mentioned in the you know, early on, I really enjoyed this book. It was a very different approach. Uh, as I said, for you know, in case people didn't quite catch it when I said it in the intro, uh, the book is called Every Guest Is a Hero: Disney's Theme Parks and the Magic of Mythic Storytelling. It's kind of a big mouthful title but an important like all of those words are important so why did you decide to write it and just kind of if you can give a thumbnail of what it's about
3: sure okay well let's start with a thumbnail um this is how i like to start th- some of the premise and this is actually on the back cover of the book though you may not be aware of it whenever you're playing in any of disney's many theme parks the imagineers who designed those parks are busy playing with your head From there, I go on to reveal how the artists and technical wizards of Walt Disney Imagineering have harnessed the magic of mythic storytelling to press all sorts of psychological buttons you never even knew you had. So, uh, Every Guest is a Hero is all about the stories that are going on all around you in all the Disney parks. Uh, These are stories that you may not even be conscious of, and yet they're so powerful, they're so compelling, that they inspire you and millions of your fellow visitors to return to the parks over and over again. Now... Whenever you're in the Disney parks, you are literally surrounded by those stories, as I said. And it may seem like there are hundreds of them, but once you look a little closer, it turns out they're really all just a single story expressed in many variations through many different formats and mediums. But that's where my book comes in, because every guest as a hero reveals how this ancient story, uh, what what it is and and how it's hidden in plain sight everywhere you go in the Disney parks. And uh, the name of that story is The Hero's Journey. As it turns out, this is the first book ever to delve into the subject of Disney storytelling from this perspective. I'm dealing with some of WDI's best-kept storytelling secrets, and it's frankly my privilege to be revealing them for the very first time.
0: It's, definitely, it's a, certainly a lot of things that I had never thought of before, and I've experienced most of the attractions that you talk about to uh, you know, one degree or another. And I had never really thought about most of it, but it made sense.
3: Well, yeah, and... I, it's really just being able to expand your point of view, to expand your perspective. And I had been fascinated by the concept of the hero's journey ever since I learned about it during my college years, all those many decades ago, although I didn't actually study it in college. It was all done on my own time. My college roommate let me borrow his copy of a book called Skywalking by an author, Dale Pollack. And this was the first authorized biography of george lucas and among other things the book talked about how george lucas was influenced by the mythologist joseph campbell and his theory of the hero's journey when he was working on the very first screenplay treatments for star wars now this just instantly captured my imagination so I, I rushed right out and i bought myself a copy of the hero with a thousand faces by joseph campbell and i've been a fan of him ever since I guess one of the reasons it appealed to me is that I've always been fascinated by the idea that so much of what we experience in our lives involves subconscious processes that we're usually not even aware of, which is what's going on most of the time with these mythic stories. Part of that might be the fact that I'm the son of a psychiatrist. My, my dad was a shrink, so I, I was, that was sort of part of my upbringing, being in that milieu of psychoanalysis. But when we look at the myths in general and at the hero's journey in particular, you can say we're actually getting a peek under the hood and seeing some of these normally hidden psychological processes exposed through symbols and metaphors. And as a lifelong theme park enthusiast, I began to notice that there was a lot of mythic storytelling going on in the Disney parks. And of course, all the theme parks tell stories. I mean, you know, if they didn't, they wouldn't be theme parks. Right. (laughs) So, you know, theme is story, story is theme. But uh, what sets Disney apart is the consistency of their commitment to storytelling. Every element of every Disney park begins with a story I I think that's probably a direct legacy of Walt Disney's own intuitive gift for storytelling, which dates back to his earliest years as an animator. One of the things I like to say is that if you want to get a sense of the impact of Walt's storytelling legacy, just ask yourself, when was the last time you heard someone say, oh, hey, did you hear there's a new Paramount Pictures movie opening this weekend? Or, uh, oh, I can't wait to see that new Universal movie.
0: I see your point, yeah.
3: Yeah, but you know exactly what people are talking about when they'll say, uh, you know, there's a new Disney movie opening this weekend. Are you going to go? Or a Pixar movie? Oh, boy, I can't wait to see that one. I think that really is a direct result of of that storytelling legacy. So, you know, it was really only natural that I would focus on Disney when exploring how the hero's journey works in that three-dimensional immersive environment, such as you get in the theme park. You know, obviously Disney is not alone in that realm by any means. Other companies out there are doing amazing work, but Disney was the first. And in the minds of many people, they're still the best. That's mm-hmm. um, up for debate, but you know, certainly there are people who have that point of view. The only problem was that when I went to look for books on the subject of mythic storytelling in the parks and in Disney in particular, you know, there, there weren't any. They just didn't exist. And that's when I realized I had to write it myself. Now, uh, when I first started writing the book, I, I have to confess, I. Started to worry that I wouldn't be able to prove my thesis, my assumptions about the role of mythic storytelling and the prevalence of the hero's journey in the parks that you know they, they just wouldn't pan out. But as I got further into the book and I, as I continued to dig into the subject, you know, I began to realize that mythic storytelling is not only present in the park, but it goes much deeper and is far more pervasive than I had ever imagined.
0: In what way? Well,
3: I, I guess you have to ask yourself why do they rely on mythic storytelling? Why is it there in the first place? I I think it's because it's essential to their bottom line. You know, like all smart marketers, they, they know that the fastest way to a consumer's wallet is through the emotions. And the fastest way to the emotions is through the subconscious. And the fastest way into the subconscious is through storytelling. So when you are telling mythic stories, you're actually communicating in a language that the subconscious parts of your brain understands. and and, and reacts to in very, very vivid ways. So you can say that myths provide a sort of a psychological express lane straight into the human psyche. And when I started digging into it, when I started actually doing the case studies that you find in the second half of the book, that's when I realized that everything really did line up in one way or another. You have to keep in mind that the Hero's journey, which we'll talk about, I guess, in more detail in a few minutes. Uh, it's really a very, very flexible paradigm or structure. You know, it's not rigid in any way. You can twist it into all sorts of different shapes. It doesn't have to always follow the same order or the same pattern every single time. It just there are certain elements that that are very important. But you'll find some attractions where the, those elements are absent, and you know, maybe they're spread out among several different attractions instead of all in one cases. Where there's a complete hero's journey within a I complete Hero's Journey. The, the, the Hero's Journey occurs in its entirety several times in one attraction. So uh, w- when you break it down scene by scene, you, you find it there. That's when I realized I was on the right track. And that, that really is, goes as deep as I thought it would, maybe even a little deeper.
0: And it's that flexibility that actually slowed me down a little bit while I was reading the book. And I'd have every intent of doing this interview even a month ago. But I'm a very linear thinker. And so in trying to process through as you're talking about the hero's journey and the way that sometimes it kind of loops back on itself and there's a hero's journey within a hero's journey in an attraction or one only tells part of the story of the journey or this character is ordinarily this particular archetype, but in this particular instance in the attraction is this other one. I really had to slow down and concentrate and really think through that and find a way to get out of the linear thinking and kind of shift that you know to really get uh, my head around it well
3: that's a great observation and what you're talking about is the intellectual part of your head the, the thinking part the conscious part because mm-hmm. uh this is second nature to your subconscious mind uh, oh yeah where the myths come from and therefore where all these stories that you encounter in the disney attractions, where they come from is the subconscious and the subconscious works in a very lin- non-linear way so when the attractions re- and the And the structure of the hero's journey within those attractions reflect the subconscious, then it is very nonlinear it is going to take on its own patterns
0: yeah, and then it the linear processes is in trying to analyze and you know kind of interpret it yeah. know, on a conscious level, which sometimes is extremely difficult because it wasn't really created to be understood at that level. it was meant to be just taken in at that
3: subconscious level, yeah and connect with you on an emotional level and really I, I remember. In one of uh, Joseph Campbell's books, uh, he did something that he called a pedantic stunt or something. But he, in any case, he drew a circle. And he said, this is the conscious. This is your mind. And then he made a dot in the middle. He said, this is where the center of your consciousness is. This is where everything is controlled. And he drew a line through the center, bisecting the circle right through the dot. He said, this is how people think the conscious and the subconscious minds are divided up with the uh, top half of the circle being the conscious mind and the bottom half of the circle being the uh, unconscious mind. And then he drew a second circle, put the dot in the middle. But he, this time he drew the line one-third of the way down from the top so that the dot was quite a bit below the horizontal line. And he says, this is what's really going on in the mind. Two-thirds or three-quarters of you, of, of your personality, of your mind, is Operating on the subconscious level, and that dot at the center that represents the center of who you are, the part that 's in control that 's in your subconscious mind, and only one third of, of you is is above that line only one third of who you are and what you do and what you think and how you feel is controlled by the conscious part of your the volitional part of your mind mm. so that that was very revelatory because when when you look at the mind and realize how much of the structure of the subconscious is in control and really guiding us in how we react to the world around us and how we behave and how we understand what's happening uh, that we see. you know we, we realize that we're much more creatures of emotion and subconscious automatic reactions than we, we want to sometimes acknowledge.
0: Uh, I've noticed that myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we don't want to go into the full detail of the book because we want people to buy the book, <laughs> and they absolutely should. But so that they have some idea of what we're talking about talking to you as the listener, assuming you have not read the book, Mm -hmm. and you might be listening to this and thinking, but what in the world is this hero's journey? I I think I might have heard something about it in high school or college English or something like that, and it sounds like it might be interesting, but I'm just kind of lost here. So, Adam, can we kind of explain to that person just sort of the major pieces of the hero's journey, like, you know, the four movements and at least some of the character archetypes, when they're kind of going to come across most often?
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll summarize it as compactly as I can. Um, you've heard the name Joseph Campbell tossed around already, and it was Joseph Campbell who coined the term The Hero's Journey. Campbell was a noted mythologist, author, and lecturer, and he spent years and years studying and comparing the myths, legends, folk stories, and fairy tales of cultures around the world. And uh, Eventually, he realized that they all had certain elements in common. And then from these observations, he was able to describe a structure or a paradigm that seemed to recur over and over again. And that's what he called the hero's journey. And this is also known as something known as the heroic round because the hero's journey is cyclical. It usually begins with the hero in the ordinary world. And then after a series of adventures in the special world, the hero ends up back in the ordinary world again. It's also known as the monomyth because it's shared in one form or another by people everywhere and the monomyth is a metaphor that describes a journey of transformation shared by everyone everywhere it resonates with the human psyche in remarkable ways because it embodies the transformative events um, that is the you know the challenges setbacks triumphs that we all face in life and ultimately that's the reason why the hero's journey connects with people of all ages and of all backgrounds and on i guess what really is a, a very deeply satisfying emotional level so uh, let's begin with the archetypes that was the term that was I think coined by the Swiss psychologist, Carl Heung. uh he used the word archetypes to describe characters or entities that reappear time after time in everyone's dreams and in the mythologies of every culture. Um, Jung believed that uh, these different archetypes represent the various aspects of our own personalities. So for instance, whenever the hero meets any one of these archetypes in the course of her adventure, she's actually meeting a personification of one facet of her personality. So uh, her Adventure will be successfully concluded when she's able to control and integrate all of the archetypes that she may encounter during her journey and she'll end up with a complete mature identity and uh, that in a nutshell is a transformation that every mythic hero undergoes in the course of his or her hero's journey. Now, uh, you sort of mentioned this, as you alluded to this, that uh, one way to look at these archetypes is to picture them as masks. So a character may wear a single mask throughout the entire journey, or they may switch to a different mask at some point that serves the purpose of the story. And The same mask can even get passed around to different characters, or a single character might even wear multiple masks at the same time. So uh, the first mask or archetype is the hero, and that's the character whose journey this is. The hero's role is essentially one of service and self-sacrifice. The hero places the safety and welfare of others above her own, and psychologically, the hero symbolizes the ego. Um, The ego, of course, is a sense of personal identity that distinguishes each of us from pretty much everyone else in the world. The hero's ultimate goal is to bring together all the different components of of her own ego as uh, represented by the other archetypes, and in this way achieve a fully rounded sense of self. Then we have the mentors who provides wisdom and guidance to the hero. Um, On a psychological level, the mentor represents our higher, nobler selves, the wiser aspects of our personality. Uh, There's the threshold guardian whose job is to prevent access to the special world, admitting only those who can prove themselves deserving. Uh, Psychologically, uh, the threshold guardian symbolizes our own self-doubts, our inner demons or other other negative energies that hold us back uh, whenever we encounter life altering challenges. Next, we have the Herald, who uh, announces to the hero that there are challenges or crucial changes on the way. Um, Then we have the Shapeshifter, who may be able to literally change his or her physical appearance, like the Wicked Queen does in Snow White when she turns into the hag. But uh, more often, it's the character's true nature or objectives or loyalties that are being disguised in order to mislead or confuse or somehow some other way thwart the hero. Of course, uh, every hero needs an opponent— an antagonist or archenemy, and the shadow role uh, character or archetype fills that role, driving the conflict at the heart of the story. And um, On a psychological level, that's uh, the shadow embodies our darker impulses or fears and desires, or our repressed feelings of guilt or regret or resentment. And then finally we come to the trickster, who takes delight in unleashing chaos and mischief and disrupting the status quo and forcing change. Very often they point out the folly and hypocrisy, uh, other characters wherever they find it. They might bring the hero and sometimes the shadow down to Earth and set matters in proper perspective. So uh, now that we know that the archetypes, let's look at the stages of the hero's journey. There are four major movements that you indicated, uh, separation, descent, ordeal, and return. And some of the key stages within those movements are... uh, The call to adventure, the refusal of the call, the meeting with the mentor, the crossing of the first threshold, the road of trials, the approach to the inmost cave, the supreme ordeal, the reward, the road back, resurrection, and return to the ordinary world. And uh, even though the journey may often take the protagonist and, of course, the audience on a physical adventure, the mythic round really, first and foremost, it's an inner journey. It's really a journey of personal transformation in which the hero would be challenged to grow in character, to take individual responsibility, and successfully bring together the different elements of his or her personality to become an emotionally complete person. But keep in mind that the stages of the hero's journey are not set in stone. As I, as I mentioned earlier, they're actually quite flexible, depending on whatever the story is that's being told. So the narrative structure can branch off in different directions. You can add stages, take some away, or switch them around to meet the needs of the story. And that's, again, where things become very nonlinear, as you pointed out.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe that in using the term mythic storytelling here, especially specifically the term myth, mm-hmm. we're not necessarily referring to fictional stories. They could be fictional, but a myth in the more classical sense of the term was just kind of more uh, of an overarching story, but not necessarily a fictional one. It could be factual. It could be rooted. In fact, it could be fictional. So the story of Abraham Lincoln could be looked at and described as a hero's journey and a mythic story the same way that Snow
3: White could oh yes that's that's a really good observation I'm glad you brought that up because people are accustomed to hearing the term uh, you know alligators in the sewers that's just a myth you know that's an urban myth So the term myth has generally become uh, a a synonym meaning uh, a falsehood uh, something that's made up something that is untrue In reality, the way that we use it here is a myth is a story that comes out of the subconscious that expresses a psychological truth. In fact, that's one way that mythologists often describe myths, that they're lies that tell the truth. They might be a made-up story or they might be true, but whether they really happened or not, they reflect a deep truth uh, psychological level, that uh, something about uh, the way people really are or think or or feel or, or how they perceive the world or how they react to the world. That's where all myths come from. They come from the dreams, and they come from our subconscious thoughts and and ideas. It's really where where all creativity comes from. All creativity is based in myth, and and in mythic storytelling.
0: Mm -hmm. So now that we've kind of got the overview of what the hero's journey is, and what the pieces of it are, in whatever order they may fall, however many of the pieces are there, I would expect that the hero is probably a pretty consistent archetype that shows up in all of them, And the rest can kind of come and go. But I expect the hero probably has to be in all of them.
3: Yeah, I mean, and and the hero, you know, the hero can be his or her own mentor sometimes. Or Mm -hmm. or they can be their own worst enemy. I mean, who is the mentor in the Indiana Jones movies? He he usually doesn't have one. He's his own mentor.
0: Right. It's not until Last Crusade, really, that there's an official mentor. His father came in.
3: Yeah, exactly. And that one is full of shapeshifters as well. There's all these people who are two-faced and betraying him left and right. Mm-hmm. Who, who, turn out, who, who he thinks are bad guys and turn out to be good guys?
0: Right. That's become a very popular form of storytelling now. Oh yes. You know, it, it was maybe less so, I think, with the fairy tales. And uh, I can't remember if I read this in your book or if it was somewhere else that I read it recently. But the fairy tales used to be very popular, and it was you know the good guys were the good guys, the bad guys were the bad guys, and there was no confusing them. And now it seems like it's much more that the heroes are sometimes imperfect, sometimes they're anti-heroes, and then the villains have some kind of sympathetic aspect to their character so that they're bad but they're not completely bad and the lines kind of blur
3: yeah and i would point out that and what you say is very true but i, I would say that at those at that point they're really no longer fairy tales in the strictest sense of the term uh the, the uh, child psychologist uh, bruno bedelheim who wrote a very famous book called the uses of enchantment he pointed out that really fairy tales are meant for children mm-hmm. and and in order to have the most impact you really have to have the characters very clearly delineated in terms of their purpose and their their motivations and and their identities and to that effect that the heroes really have to be heroes all the way through the villains have to be really dark villains and they really have to get their comeuppance so that in a real fairy tale you do not have that ambiguity modern fairy tales fairy tales in quote yeah all the time, certainly uh, some of the most successful Disney movies of recent times uh, are, are very much along those lines.
0: And even one of their most successful TV series, Once Upon a Time, mm-hmm. which is based on fairy tales, but by the strict definition is definitely not a fairy tale or even a collection of fairy tales, although it is a collection of heroes' journeys.
3: And it's not meant for children either. Right,
0: <laughs> exactly.
3: If you want to aim something directly at children, the characters have to be unambiguously uh, heroic or good or bad or uh, evil or, or innocent. There can't be any sense of back and forth.
0: Right. Yeah. So now that we have those pieces, when Imagineers are creating attractions, writing story treatments or even just kind of blue skying ideas, from your experience, do they usually consciously use The hero's journey when they're creating these?
3: Well, I've been assured that today's Imagineers are very well versed in Campbellian theory and that they do indeed integrate it consciously into their attractions. That said, I've never actually seen it. Uh, I don't hear them talking about it when I meet with them. I try not to talk about it too specifically, uh, although it's always in the back of my mind. But I know that. The projects that I've worked on, it's always been part of my own writing toolkit, among many other considerations. But usually if there's been some creative development that's already been done before I'm brought on board, I'll find that the elements of the hero's journey have already been integrated into the concept to one degree or another. And I think they just do it automatically. I think it may may be second nature to them to that point. Now, having said that, I think the early Imagineers, like Walt Disney himself, Almost certainly they were not knowledgeable about Joseph Campbell or the hero's journey. And uh, yet, as we can see, Walt's first-generation Imagineers, they still managed to introduce tons and tons of mythic content into their attraction designs. How is this possible? I I, I think it was because, like all gifted artists, they knew how to listen to their creative impulses. They were willing to allow the ideas, the archetypes, and images just to bubble up uncensored from their subconscious minds. By tapping into their dreams in this way, they were able to harness what Joseph Campbell referred to as the poetry of myth. Uh, That's when the words are replaced by environments and acts and adventures. And What's always impressed me is the fact that these early Imagineers they did all this intuitively, as artists have done for thousands of years before Joseph Campbell and his theories came along. I mean, you don't need to know about this in order to be using it. You just have to be in touch with your subconscious, with your ideas and your imagination and your dreams. But the, you know, there are anecdotes from these, those early days of Imagineering that I've come across that point to the idea that the Imagineers themselves, even if they didn't realize it, they were perpetually on their own hero's journeys. For instance, uh, well, I think you're probably familiar with the story that after Walt Disney formed WED Enterprises, which is now known as WDI, Walt Disney Imagineering, the WED workshops became Walt's favorite place to hang out and exercise his creative impulses. He would drop by there almost every day and hang out with the designers and the model makers and, and the artists and just toss ideas around and would pretty much drive everybody nuts. <laughs> um, you know, you have to sort of project yourself back to those days. Very often, if you were an Imagineer back then, you might look up from your desk and, oh, here comes Walt. The next thing you know, he's coming up to your desk or your workbench and he says, hey, I've got this crazy idea for a new attraction. What do you think of this? And now, if you're in a big hurry to get yourself fired, all you have to do is say, well, oh, no, sorry. Well, we can't do that. And then you back it up with all sorts of wisdom and logic and good reasoning and everything and it. None of that would matter. If You said no because well, that was it. In Walt's mind, you were slamming the door shut. You were foreclosing on any possibilities for success. On the other hand, if you wanted to keep your job, you would say, well, yes, yes, Walt, if, as in, yes, we can do it, Walt, if we tunnel under the train tracks and build the show building outside the berm or whatever. Mm -hmm. As long as you kept yourself open to possibilities and you were singing Walt's tune and he was happy. Now, let's look at this transaction from the standpoint of the hero's journey. Imagine you, Randy, are a first-generation Imagineer. This makes you the prospective hero. Okay. And Walt is about to assume the classic hero.
0: That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Adam Berger for being my guest and to you for listening. Next time, we'll take the idea of the hero's journey into the Disney parks. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book, you're blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to people and hear from people who have worked for Disney. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience, you don't have to have done any of those creating things that I mentioned earlier, but if you've just got an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or you've had any special Disney experience you want to share, or give a compliment or a thank you for anything Disney's done, I'd like to hear from you, too. In all of these cases, you can email me at podcast at magic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experiences. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, especially if you're one of the ones I mentioned earlier that is doing something because of your love for Disney or you've worked for Disney, then if you want to be a guest on the show, let's talk. I mentioned at the start of the show as a reminder that soon you'll be able to get my books for free. Now again, here's how. For two days only, and this is coming up next week from the date that I released this episode, July 16th and 17th, 2014, both Faith in the Magic Kingdom and my first book, Once Upon Your Time, will be available for free Kindle download. You don't need a Kindle to read them. You can use the Kindle app for your phone, tablet, or your computer, or actually read it on a Kindle if you do have one. Just go to storiesofthemagic.com slash free books, and that'll take you directly to the Amazon page that has both books listed. And from there, you can choose either or both. Now, once you've picked them up for yourself, I'd appreciate it if you would share that link so that others can pick them up, too. Now, again, that's July 16th and 17th only. Also, as a reminder, I'll be at the Disney Expo in Garden Grove, California on July 20th. I'll have paperback copies of both of my books available at a special show discount. And of course, I'd love to meet you. So if you'll be in the area, please stop by the show and say hi. I'm doing the final preparations on the table that I'll have there that I'm sharing with Sam Genoway, former Stories of the Magic guest. So we would both love to see you if you're going to be in the area. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like, of course, the link to purchase Adam's book, which I know he and I would both appreciate it if you would do. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash magic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time.
1: You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.